is ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. The program is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. And I'm delighted to say that our guest today is again Greg Copley. Greg, thank you very much for joining us and uh, welcome. Great to be back with you, David, and with, on the program. You're, the, you're uh, an extraordinarily uh, regular author. You've written a number of books, you've published papers, and you are constantly reporting from your position as international president in Washington uh, of the International Strategic Studies Association. Welcome again. And the subject today is the situation in China. I recall that you were the very first of commentators that I was aware of who was pointing out the situation, the economic situation in China. Everywhere else I was reading that the situation in China was wonderful and they were relying, believing all of these figures produced by Beijing and I find it extraordinary that anybody could believe those figures but nobody else was talking about the difficulty of the Chinese economy. You were the first to be talking about this. You are now talking about the political difficulties of the Chinese dictator. What is the situation now, do you think, in China? Well, certainly the, all of the economic problems are coming home to roost. There's no question about it. The, the PRC economy has essentially run out of cash. It's built up... Uh, disproportionate amounts of debt, not all of it at, at a national level, but uh, throughout the country, throughout the provincial and local governments areas, uh, debt which cannot be repaid, debt which was acquired very uh, in a very ill-considered fashion. Uh, this has coincided with the collapse of the housing industry, which was allowed to uh, move ahead of its economic reality. So you've got many tens of millions of Chinese people who invested their life savings in real estate because there was nowhere else to really put it. Uh, and that money has now been lost. Uh, you've, so you've got uh, a large proportion of the rapidly aging population without a safety net uh, they're, they're, we're seeing whole cities which are empty there, as you know, uh, that uh, uh, they're being de demolished in, fact, in large part as well because they can't be completed. People have paid their money in advance, so they're not going to get a place to live. Uh, the unemployment levels there are astronomical. The, uh, the Communist Party of China stopped releasing a lot of the unemployment figures a couple of months ago. Uh, because they were saying at that stage a quarter of the youth uh, workforce, the, particularly the university graduates, were unemployed. In fact, it's dramatically more than a quarter of that sector. And arguably, as much as half of the Chinese workforce throughout the country, because the statistics never showed rural people, but, uh, but uh, approximately half of the, of the working population of the country is unemployed. So you've got a situation where trade has evaporated. You're not finding foreigners on the streets of Shanghai or uh, Beijing anymore. You're not finding uh, investment going up, foreign direct investment uh, in Chinese uh, companies going up. That's all gone. Uh, you can find in Shanghai and other great ports uh, days where you don't have 
big freighters coming in and out with raw materials and leaving with finished goods and the like. People are moving their uh, manufacturing out of China and down into other nations, India and Southeast Asia and the like. And there's attempts, of course, to repatriate some uh, work into countries like the United States and Europe. The reality is that uh, the People's Republic of China is in absolutely dire straits economically. Uh, the yuan is in grim shape, even though we see uh, the yuan being uh, offered as a, an international trading currency. Uh, and a lot of people, some people, some countries are actually using that because they do have trade with the PRC and they do still buy some things from the PRC, but not because they trust the yuan. Uh, they, what we saw with the BRICS expansion recently in, in, in the Johannesburg talks where they expanded uh, the, the BRICS alliance, a block of, of trading companies, uh, countries, uh, which is Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, that was expanded by six more countries uh, and they would, uh, under their terms, would trade in currencies other than the US dollar. There's a lot of countries are now feeling that they need an alternative to trading in the US dollar. That doesn't mean that they think that the yuan, or the ruble for that matter, or the rupee from India is the way to go, but they do need to get away from the dollar because the US government has basically had a, a dollar overreach. They use the dollar as a political weapon so that uh, if they disapprove of a government or, or individuals within a government, they can sanction them on the basis that those individuals and governments use US dollars in some of their trade. So a lot of countries, uh, like Brazil, for example, are saying, well, we want to have options because we want to trade uh, and build our trade without having to look over our shoulder at the US. So they're, they're talking about dealing with the Chinese, but not because they believe that the rupee is valuable. So we're seeing a lot of this publicity about how countries are, are moving to uh, non-dollar countries like China uh, for their trade. But the reality is that the Chinese economy itself is at the, at the point of implosion, largely because Xi Jinping has been attempting to move it back into an, uh, to a Maoist form of government. I was just going to ask you that. Uh, he's going, he seems to be following Mao Zedong. Yeah, he's... Uh, a great disciple of Mao Zedong and uh, basically wants to have that internal circulation. Not because he cares about uh, this as a, a way of improving the lot of the Chinese population, quite the contrary. It's a form of control. You remove money from the individual and they are more malleable, more controllable. You remove hope from the population for that same reason. And that's what he's been progressively doing, making sure that private enterprise in China is uh, either converted into state-owned enterprises uh, or quasi-state-owned enterprises. Uh, he's always put his faith in, in the big state-owned enterprises. And of course, none of those big state-owned enterprises contributed one jot to the Chinese economic growth that we saw uh, over the past 20, 30 years since uh, since Deng Xiaoping's uh, period after Mao. So basically, Xi Jinping is wanting to preside over a decreasing Chinese economy simply because it gives him more control. Now, 
that is actually starting to backfire because the Chinese people who were uh, dramatically urbanised during his uh, period in office had their hopes raised uh, during the, the post-Mao period. Uh, they were given to understand that they could make money, that they could travel, that they could buy things and which were their own, uh, and that they, and their money gave them uh, a voice, that their family stood for something. Now Xi Jinping is trying to take that away so that he can have more control. And despite the fact that uh, under Xi, the internal security budget is higher than the national defence budget, he still can't control the population. We're still seeing massive and increasing waves of unrest uh, in China as people uh, rebel against the the loss of their businesses and the fact that uh, the Beijing government has basically allowed their cities and towns to be washed away in the big floods, not just because the floods were unprecedented and unpredictable, but because the great dams built in this Maoist-Stalinist mode uh, since 1949 have been under great pressure and they've been releasing waters which flooded and destroyed many, many towns and cities simply so that the waters could be diverted away from destroying Beijing or damaging Beijing and Shanghai. So we're seeing great dissatisfaction within the Chinese population. We're seeing a dramatically reduced economy. Uh, The Chinese ability to produce food has not only uh, been insufficient, it's now decreasing dramatically. Their food reserves have been wiped out because they've been poorly stored. And as we've discussed before, they've got something like 20% of the world's population and only 7% of the world's water. So they have not really the means to feed themselves. Uh, uh, Now, you've got the population itself, which is ageing and becoming less productive and likely to be more dependent on a smaller core of younger people who are now out of out of work. So you can see this whole recipe is going from bad to worse. Um, and right now, uh, as I said in February 2022, when the Russia-Ukraine war started, I said that war saved the Communist Party of China at least for a short period because it meant that Russia couldn't sell its grain on the world markets or its energy, so it started selling them at low prices to the People's Republic of China as well as to countries like India. But the reality is that uh, that the People's Republic of China is just spiralling downward at this point. Now, Xi Jinping is saying with his wolf warrior diplomacy, and which is largely about uh, rhetorical bombast, is talking still about uh, invading and uh, conquering Taiwan and bringing it under the People's Republic of China. Just on uh, that, well, if I could interrupt you, you, you uh, uh, raised a, a very interesting analogy on another occasion, and that was you saw an analogy with Galtieri in Argentina distracting attention from the failure of the dictatorship by attacking the Falkland Islands. And do you see a similar thing in relation to Taiwan that if things get more difficult from the point of view of the government control of the population, 
that she uh, might decide to invade Taiwan purely as a distraction, as an attempt to unify the population? Yes. Uh, in fact, I've called it the, the Galtieri syndrome, and I've written about that a, a lot. The interesting thing, though, is that although he's given great attention to the People's Liberation Army and built up a lot of their capacity, he's been building amphibious uh, assault ships for the PLA Navy, uh, and he's been building uh, these new Y-20 heavy transport aircraft in large numbers so that they could do parachute drops on Taiwan. But despite that, it's now clear that any attempt by the PLA to invade Taiwan would be problematic. Yes, they could destroy Taiwan, but at what cost? The cost would be starting a war with India on the Tibetan plateau. India is ready to do that. They've got a million troops in Kashmir just ready for that and ready to cut off the People's Republic of China's land access through Pakistan. The Indian Army would cut across that. That would isolate in, uh, the, the PRC quite dramatically. Uh, you, Vietnam would be engaged immediately. Japan has said that if Taiwan was invaded, Japan would automatically be involved. And then there's the US-Japan Treaty, which would then automatically engage the US. Uh, yes, it's probable that Beijing could get North Korea to make some gestures, but the North Koreans just made it clear in the last few weeks that they take their orders and friendship from Moscow, as they always have done, and not from Beijing. Just so on the reality that, uh, is, if I could interrupt you, just on that, one of the frightening things that you, you warned about was if uh, China, the Republic of China, that is Taiwan, were forced into a position to defend themselves, what they might do to the Three Gorges Dam, the enormous dam that the uh, communists built, and the impact of that dam being broken by, by the Taiwanese bombing that dam. Could you tell us about that? Yes, if, if uh, on day one, you could almost say, uh, of a, a, a PRC war against Taiwan, the Taiwanese would definitely target the Three Gorges Dam. Wiping that dam out would bring a deluge which would destroy Beijing and Shanghai. That's a cost which the PLA is not going to stand for. As well, the, the Taiwanese on day one would start attacking the support bases for the Chinese carrier task forces, uh, particularly up in the Dalian area in the north of the country. Um, so all of a sudden, it would be a very, very questionable military operation for Beijing uh, and even wargaming uh, by the by, the PRC and by the US showing a, a direct assault across the Taiwan Straits uh, at the at Taiwan, which is not an easy thing. It's a long distance. It's you know it's uh, six times the distance across the uh, of the English Channel, for example. But there are also very few beaches uh, on Taiwan which are suitable for uh, an amphibious landing. So uh, how how PRC many times be, is it of the English Channel? Well, five or six times. So it's, uh, it's quite a distance. And, and the channel oh, yes. was such an obstacle in the Second World War, wasn't it? Yeah. And more than that, you've got to the, the modern 
Taiwanese armed forces, which are very, very capable, and you could count on the loss of probably 50% of the amphibious task force by, by the PRC, you could probably count on the loss of as much as 50% of the heavy transport aircraft dropping paratroopers. So all of a sudden, you, you've got a, a questionable situation there. And that's if Vietnam doesn't come into the war, if Japan doesn't come into the war, if India doesn't come into the war, and the United States, of course. So uh, what we've seen in the past couple of months is this the, the quiet anger within the People's Liberation Army is starting to come out, and it's now apparent that the People's Liberation Army would probably refuse an order by Xi to attack Taiwan. As a result, Xi Jinping has replaced the heads of the rocket force, strategic rocket force, which is a critical force if they're going to attack any major power, including Taiwan. You have to have competent and unified force there answerable to Xi, and it's not. He replaced the commandant and the political commissar of the strategic rocket force and a few other uh, very senior level uh, generals and replaced them with uh, the former deputy commander of the Navy, for example, who you'd have to say is not versed in the technologies of, of the strategic rocket force. You've, you've had the defence minister who was recently appointed by Xi Jinping has now disappeared and it looks as though he's, quote, under investigation and over corruption issues, which is always the, the standby if you, if you get rid of somebody, it's on corruption grounds. Uh, just as you saw the, the foreign minister, uh, Ching Gong, uh, basically has been removed from the scene and he was only appointed very recently as foreign minister by Xi Jinping. So it's not as though he's getting rid of, now getting rid of uh, people who are loyal to previous administrators in China. He's getting rid of people he appointed because he can't trust them. The, so the news, the just on that, if I can interrupt you, the, the newspapers this morning were saying that uh, the reason was, the foreign minister, the reason was he was having indiscreet affairs which could be used to blackmail him. But do you think that that's, that's, just, a, that's just an excuse given out because uh, she suspects that he can't be trusted? Well, uh, he, he might have good reason for that. Uh, the, the minister's uh, mistress, who gave him a baby with an American passport while he was in <laughs> Washington, she was the, the, a very well-connected um, anchor person for Phoenix Television, the Chinese channel. Uh, and she ran their, their bureau in London and, and met there with many, many heads of government. Uh, she did the same thing in Washington, D.C. She was very influential. But what we have to remember is that Phoenix TV, which is a quasi-nominally private organisation in Hong Kong, is actually run and financed by the People's Liberation Army. So the PLA is the key determinant in, in uh, Ching Gong's situation. I think Xi Jinping fears that uh, Ching Gong may have become influenced by his mistress and therefore by the, PL, the PLA itself. Mm. So what we're seeing now is that the Chinese economy is going down the drain. The threats of going to war with Taiwan are being seen to be unfeasible or infeasible. 
and what does the Communist Party of China do? They either stand by and witness the implosion of the country and possibly the rebellion of the PLA. Uh, so we, we could either see a PLA rebellion uh, to quietly, you know, take charge, or we could see a rebellion within the Communist Party of China, perhaps allied to the PLA, to remove Xi Jinping. In fact, if you look at it, and I've written about this today, actually, if you look at this, the Chinese Communist Party could not survive in all probability the implosion of uh, the economy and the rebellion of the PLA. So they have to move pretty quickly to do something about Xi Jinping. Yes. This, so this he recalls, is now at a desperate state. Is, this recalls the uh, what was obviously going on between Stalin and the military, just as war was about to break out with Germany, with the way in which uh, they they uh, purged the top of the uh, purged and liquidated the top of the Red Army, because obviously they were showing some disloyalty, or at least Stalin suspected they were showing some disloyalty to him. There's a lot of parallel there. One of the interesting things, one of the things which uh, people in the West are concerned about is the uh, the enormous amount of. Uh, microchips that are you developed and manufactured in Taiwan. And you tell a very interesting story, which I'd never become aware of, and that is the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company and the, the methods or the, the attempts that they've entered into to uh, locate their industry outside of Taiwan and the, perhaps the way in which that has been uh, weakened or defeated by what's happening in the US. Uh, would you tell us about the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, which I'd never heard of before, I must say? Uh, one of the most powerful companies in the world controls 55% of the world's advanced uh, um, semiconductors or microchips. Uh, yes, they, at the uh, strong urging of the United States government, they built, built two factories in Arizona and they're complete, and they're very advanced, and they were due, the first one was due to go online producing some of these advanced um, chips by next year. Was that the, that, was that, could I interrupt you, was that the Biden administration or the Trump administration that encouraged that? Well, the, the Trump administration started the process on that for sure, and the Biden administration has encouraged it. The reason that they've delayed the start of production is that they cannot find sufficient skilled workers in the United States. What about all those millions Despite of people? Fact, what about the millions of people who are going, coming across the frontier? I think we've discussed this before <laughs> on a, a population. Uh, you need to get the right population. <laughs> yes, yeah, so it's not about, about population size because the US has brought in millions uh, of of illegal immigrants in the past two years across the southern border, not one of them uh, is likely to be capable of uh, of joining the TSMC workforce in Arizona. So, yeah, the the idea is right: bring the manufacturing back to the United States, but you also have to uh, then make sure that you have an educated workforce. And that means you have to have an education system which is uh, able to 
actually produce people who can do things rather than uh, to be politically correct. And the United States education industry is in dire straits at this stage. And you could argue that it's in dire straits in much of the Western world because it's become largely about the generation of financial empires. Colleges and universities have become financial empires in a, to a large degree. Uh, and they have uh, also uh, allowed themselves to forget their mission in terms of classical education. Have they been taken over by the far left? Oh, in the United States, uh, almost all of them, yes. So they've become... The big, ones that haven't. Yes. Are the, so they've become businesses and yet run by Marxists. Well, you could also make the same claim about giant international financial firms like like uh, Blackwater. Oh, no, what's not Blackwater? Um, BlackRock, mm. um, which is very politically correct because it's it's attempting to uh, appear to be enlightened uh, and has lost a lot of its its uh, if you like uh, rigor and discipline. And by the way, has invested massive amounts of U.S. pension funds and the like uh, in the People's Republic of China, and those pensioners are never going to see those funds coming back out again. A similar thing's happened in Australia in relation to corporations. In the voice referendum, a significant number of corporations have done what has never been done before. They've come out in favour of one side in a referendum and they've given money and other favours to the referendum and uh, the former head of Qantas has become the face of the corporate uh, presentation of uh, the Yes case. And uh, he has given, decorated a number of his planes with the Yes on mm. the side and uh, has offered free travel for those running the Yes campaign in uh, Australia. So <laughs> it seems to be a universal development of corporations turning to the communist left. No question about it. And um, the fact that Mr Joyce has left Qantas with his tail between his legs and, and a large satchel <laughs> of uh, money um, tells the story. Um, and, and by the way, the, uh, the, the, the downfall of a great Australian institution like Qantas uh, is some, a source of great shame to many Australians. And I will never fly on Qantas again until it returns to its Australian values, even though it had a rough start under Sir Hudson Fish and might not have been as, uh, shall we say, um, good as Sir Charles Kingsley-Smith and Charles Alms, uh, Australian National Airways or Western Australian Airways under Sir Norman Brealey. Nonetheless, Qantas rose to become a great Australian institution and has now let down the Australian public. She seems to have many of the characteristics of a Stalin. And uh, he seems to be opposed to reform. There is a possibility, like Stalin, that he will survive. If he does, what will happen to communist China? Well, uh, I, I did a paper on that uh, recently too called uh, What If She Survives? Uh, what we will see is that he will... Uh, it's already written that you know the, the the degradation of the Chinese economy is such that he will preside over a very 
tightly controlled population which will be very, very poor. They will be industrially uh, degraded to a, a degree unimaginable five years ago or ten years ago. Um, and, and yes, he, he is, well, he's a Maoist, and, and Mao is in many ways similar to Stalin, although Stalin and Mao distrusted each other immensely, largely because they were too similar. But That's Mao in their nature, isn't took, it? That's in their nature, was in oh, their yeah. nature. Yeah. They were very distrustful. Yeah. Uh, so so what, we'll, what we'll see is um, an impoverished China. We could see levels of starvation reaching those of the Maoist cultural revolution period when uh, 60 to 100 million people uh, perished from starvation and, and uh, maltreatment. So that's very much on the cards. To say that it couldn't happen again, well, we, we keep that seeing that phrase appear, it can't happen again. We saw after World War II, we saw some of the uh, barbarity of the, the uh, Bosnian Muslims and the Croatians in the breakup of, of um, Yugoslavia. It can't happen again. It did happen again. We can, we're seeing, you know, hundreds of thousands of people killed in civil wars in uh, Ethiopia over the recent years and the like. We, we, these things can happen and are starting to happen again. One of the and most we, uh, surprising no things. In- one of the most surprising things I found is the rise of anti-Semitism in the West. I, I just find it after mm-hmm. what happened in the Second World War and before the Second World War, that it could rise again. We, and it was said never again was the, the line taken in the West, and yet it seems to be quite, uh, quite common. Absolutely. Uh, I think people, well, to say people have a short memory is, is being generous. Most people have no knowledge or memory of any of these historical situations, and that's been the large, largely the fault of our education systems mm. in the West. We're seeing people without any knowledge of, uh, uh, of the most basic fundamentals, not only of history, but of, of current uh, political and geographic interest. Yes, and you're you right. Uh, in the education has been replaced by indoctrination in much of the West, yes. and in, particularly in this country, where we're pouring more money. We, we were encouraged to put more money in uh, the Gonski call was to put enormous amounts of money into education, but the more money that was put in, the lower were the results because we know what the results are by international comparisons. You make a particular reference, mm. do you not, in, in the paper that I'm referring to, to the Security Council seat, which I thought was ridiculously handed over by the West to the communists instead of keeping it where it uh, would have been better to have kept it. But you make a reference to the relevance of the Security Council seat even now that China has. Yes, I mean, China has been using its United Nations credentials, the Security Council permanent seat, and its ability to manipulate UN institutions like the World Health Organization, uh, the Food and Agricultural Organization, ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization and the like, been very politically manipulated to give uh, Beijing a, a leverage to punish Taiwan particularly. And the reality is that the Chinese civil war did not end in 1949. What we saw was that the Republic of China, uh, the government which had ruled since 
the collapse of the monarchy or the imperial government in 1911 and 1912, the Republic of China moved its its base back into Ta- or into Taiwan uh, because that was, uh, if you like, the, the result of World War II. What you saw during World War II and in the lead-up to, to World War II was uh, the Republic of China forces uh, the Kuomintang fighting the Japanese invaders. The People's Republic of China, I'm sorry, did not exist at that stage, but the Communist Party had the People's Liberation Army, which stayed out largely of the war against Japan, waiting for the Japanese to uh, attrit or reduce the, the nationalist Chinese forces, which is what happened. So when Japan was defeated, the People's Liberation Army was able to attack and uh, corner the Republic of China. So they fled to Taiwan. But the Republic of China, which was one of the victors of World War II, one of the great powers of World War II, and which was one of the founders of the United Nations, was given a permanent seat on on the Security Council. That seat was taken away from Republic of China, Taiwan, and given to the People's Republic of China, which had, in fact, not only not helped win World War II, but had deliberately stayed out of it uh, for its own political machinations. Uh, now, the Republic of China still exists, can I, and yet we have disenfranchised it. Can I just ask you on that? That could have only been done with the approval of the Western powers themselves on the Security Council, yes. could it not? Who was the president That's correct. then? We saw, uh, well, uh, we, it, we started to see it um, with Nixon, uh, who had uh, who was toying with, but he wasn't about to give that kind of concession to Beijing. But it was really culminated with Jimmy Carter, who uh, basically mm-hmm. thought he could rewrite, uh, if you like, the, um, the, the 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 rules of of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, it's been going downhill steadily and and been uncorrected. And and of course, uh, in particular, uh, the Clinton administration was very very encouraging of the People's Republic of China gaining a new foothold, ostensibly on the grounds that uh, if the People's Republic of China became rich, it would no longer be a threat to the West. That's the extent of of Bill Clinton's historical savvy, if you like. Uh, and is on that, just on that belief that the West gave so much and tolerated the theft so much of uh, intellectual property and so on. It was all on the basis of the belief that if if communist China became rich, it would no longer be a threat and we could make a lot of money out of them. That was also their, their idea, right. wasn't it? Yes, absolutely. And uh, they would all become capitalists and, uh, and, th- and then we'd all be the same and ideology didn't matter anymore. Well, that's true of the Chinese people. The Chinese people are incredibly entrepreneurial and, and industrious, and uh, they mix very well with the, with the rest of the world, but they don't control the power. Uh, and the people who control the power don't want them to have the money. They, want, they just want to be in charge, and therefore we're, we're getting this result now of you know, taking the money back from the Chinese population and the, and the Chinese leadership 
is happy to preside over an impoverished country, provided it remains in power. And it will still be enormously powerful in the world because it still have a, a large standing armed forces with nuclear weapons. So, you know, uh, Xi Jinping doesn't have to worry. If he stays in power, he, he's not going to go hungry and neither are, are the elite nomenclatura, if you like, of the uh, Communist Party of China. The Chinese population is declining, is it not, in numbers? Yes, it's significantly. It's ageing dramatically and it's, it's reduced from its population level of 1.4 billion, probably already down at 1.2 or less billion. It's already been exceeded by the population of India. Um, and uh, I think, uh, well, one would hope that the, the Indian politicians are fairly nervous about that reality because that's uh, inviting huge problems, of course, because uh, at best you've got half of the Indian population uh, with a relatively decent income that they can feed and clothe themselves because the, uh, there's still a long way to go to bring India up to, if you like, a, uh, a prosperous level. What has been the Japanese experience of a declining population? Is it, how is it working? Well, it's just gradually sort of fading away in some respects. Uh, and the, I think the Japanese are aware they're going to have to do something. But you've got uh, a declining population and a stagnant economy, which they don't seem to be able to re-stimulate. Re um, even so, it's pretty uh, powerful. It's, it's still the number three economy in the world, um, it, like Australia has not grown at the level it should have. It's not grown at a rate commensurate with the US or the People's Republic of China. Uh, and the People's Republic of China, uh, even even if you halve the official numbers, is still uh, a bigger economy than Japan. Given In the United our, States, it's yes, hard to say. Given our special relationship with the United Kingdom, how is the UK going after Brexit and heading towards an election? Well, I, I, nobody's ever satisfied uh, in, a, in any electorate. So um, there is this... <laughs> Wise this words. Say, well, we should have done better. <laughs> um, there, there's a lot of belief that Britain should have done better and probably it should have. Uh, Boris Johnson did not negotiate a clean break with the EU. Uh, that's coming back to haunt the, the, uh, the Britain at the moment. But Britain, in many respects, is still far better off than the rest of Europe. Uh, the Brits are saying, well, we should have been uh, much better off than we are today. Well, yes, that's true. But with the global downturn and the European continental downturn, particularly if you look at Germany and the like, uh, Britain is doing pretty well. I think it's going to be uh, difficult for uh, Rishi Sunak to... to win the next election, but I think it's still feasible, largely because Labor has very little to offer, hasn't come up with any significant proposals. Uh, certainly Labor has stopped talking about reversing Brexit, stopped talking about coming back with a, an alliance uh, with Europe, largely because it knows that it would lose its... Um, belt of voters, which it, uh, again, which it was up on the north of England, which it lost to the Tories in the last election. 
So if if they if Labour comes back and talks about rejoining Europe, that might be the kiss of death for a, a Labour parliamentary victory. Uh, but yet what we are seeing is as tempers calm down, the UK and France are talking about a, a new framework uh, for cooperation between Britain and some of the European nations so that it would be uh, something separate from the European Union, which even the French, I think, find has stagnated. And it's, it's no surprise that King Charles made his first overseas state visit to France, and this has been very, very successful. A, a big dinner the other night in Versailles. Uh, the French have named one of their international airports the Queen Elizabeth uh, II Airport, International Airport. So, I mean, we're starting to see some contradictory signs, uh, whereas a year or two ago we we saw nothing but sour words between the two. There is there is some suggestion that Britain and France will cooperate closely. Certainly France and Britain share a view of projecting power into the Indo-Pacific to contain the People's Republic of China, so that's very positive. Uh, and they share a lot of defence cooperation programs. And how is uh, the king going? I think he's done exceptionally well. He has radically transformed the monarchy. I know the headlines in the papers are all about popular stuff like uh, about uh, Prince Harry and and the Duchess of York. But um, Duchess, is he Duchess of York? Anyway, the Duchess. Um, but the reality is that, that the king has done a lot to reinvigorate the monarchy. He's given it much more influence in popular opinion and, and social legislation than he's given credit for, far more than Queen Elizabeth uh, had done. He's done it very, very carefully and quietly. He's not there to uh, be, be political, and he made it that clear when he became king. He wasn't about to be to break the, the apolitical stance of of the crown, uh, but he, he has done very well. He spent a lot of time consolidating the base in Scotland, and there is always going to be an element there among the Scottish nationalists who are, in any event, Republican. But even a lot of the Scottish mm. nationalists are saying, well, even if we got separation from the United Kingdom, we would still want uh, the king to be our king. That's very telling because you've even had uh, Joe Biden, President of the United States, supporting the secession of Scotland from from uh, Britain. Uh, and he supported, the, of course, the, the separation of Northern Ireland from Britain as well. So um, the king has been working against the odds, but he is, uh, he's shown a deft hand at dealing with people, even when the media uh, has been a bit aloof uh, and populist, he has been there winning hearts and minds in a big way. So I think that's been very, very positive. It's only been a year, of course, since Queen Elizabeth passed away and the House of Commons uh, just issued on September the 12th, I think it was, uh, a paper which can, you can download from the web about uh, the uh, King Charles III, his first year in office. And it, was, it was actually called yeah, King Charles III, First Year of, the, of Reign and uh, published by the House of Commons Library. And that's, uh, you just Google that and you can download the full text of that. It's a very comprehensive document uh, which shows 
that this has been a, a year of substance. And uh, in our private discussions, you you discussed why he hadn't uh, come to Australia. And of course, at this stage, he, he can't. He can't come before the referendum on the voice and the possibility of a referendum on a republic. Otherwise, he'd be seen to be interfering. Yes. But I think he can and will do things to reinvigorate the crown in Australia. And as you know, we've, we've proposed, I proposed in, a, in my Australia 2050 study in 2007 or thereabouts, uh, or 2005, that we look at the creation of an Australian crown, a physical crown that could symbolise uh, the, the Australian, the king of Australia or the sovereign of Australia. And I think the same should be done in New Zealand and Canada, each of which have the monarch as the separate sovereign of their country. Well, they have a spare one in London, don't they? The, uh, the Indian state crown, which is not now used. It's there among the crown jewels, but uh, no longer <laughs> is there an emperor or empress of India. Well, we could ask the Indians if they'd like to reconsider their position. <laughs> what a good idea. What a good idea. Well, this has been a, a, a really excellent time. Is there anything further which you think you should add to, for the benefit of the viewers in relation to China and the future of China yes. in the world? We know for sure now that China is going to be a considerably less important economic partner in the world trading system, and it's reaching that point this year and next year will be very, very telling as well. Whether or not Xi Jinping is in office or not, or whether the Communist Party of China itself is in office, uh, yes, they will have a residual economic impact if uh, there's a revolution against the Communist Party and that would take them out of the global trading position for a period of time. But we have to consider how we reshape our global economic uh, posture after this year. We have to see what we need to do in terms of replacing China as a source of uh, manufactured goods, uh, replacing China as a client for Australian raw materials and agricultural products. But we also have to see what we can do to rebuild our own manufacturing base and bring our supply chain closer to home, uh, regardless of, the, of whether or not we maintain a, a diverse supply chain from around the world, the reality is that economics and, and security issues are going to dictate that we need better control over our, uh, our essentials of living. That includes energy in particular, uh, and it means a more realistic perspective on, on things. I mean, the, the current view in Australia is that we are so wealthy that we don't have to worry about the farmers in Australia or the manufacturing in Australia. If we want something, we just dial up the uh, internet and we get something delivered from somewhere in the world. Those days are over. We're seeing the uh, reduction of physical transport means. Uh, shipping is undergoing its own transformation away from the globalised uh, container revolution. We're seeing a reduction in freight aircraft capabilities and the like. Uh, so. What are we going to do? We have to start thinking seriously about how we 
build our own capabilities and our own self-reliance. That doesn't mean cutting off the world in any shape or form. It just means having control over our lives. And uh, this is something that Australians haven't thought about for a long time. But the collapse of the Chinese economy should be causing us to do that right now. And for all those people who are just starting to notice the collapse of the Chinese economy, remember that this was something we foresaw a dozen years ago. This was an inevitable event coming, that the Belt and Road Initiative would run out of cash as it now has. This is why we, we see in the current spate of coups and so on in Africa, People's Republic of China is not in there offering any solutions or any support. It's not even offering any comment. It's now, to a large extent, out of the picture. What does that mean for us? It means we have to look at a new global and regional security structure. AUKUS is very good for Australia in that regard, but we need to look beyond that and we need to look to some degree of self-reliance and we're not seeing it at the moment. We're seeing our political and military leaders still, in a sense, uh, tugging the forelock to the great powers of the world and uh, that's really an unnecessary and unfortunate attribute which we've carried over as a legacy for the past 150 or so years. Greg Hopley, you have been, again, very generous with your time. Your wisdom and your ability to know things well before other people are even aware of them is quite remarkable. I thank you very much for that and I'm sure our listeners will be our viewers will be delighted also and want me to convey our thanks for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, David. This is ADH-TV. I'm David Flint. The programme is Save the Nation, produced by Charlie Noble. Until next time.